Let go of everyday worries and find your calm with positive prayer from Silent Unity, the newest in voice-activated technology, available on any Alexa-enabled device like the Amazon Echo. Each prayer and meditation on positive prayer will help strengthen, guide, and comfort you. To enable it, just say, Alexa, open positive prayer. You can ask for a specific prayer on topics like healing, prosperity, and comfort. Give it a try today. We're glad you found us. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome to World Spirituality, exploring the unity within all cultures and faith traditions with your host, Reverend Paul John Roach. So hello and welcome to World Spirituality on the Unity Online Radio Network. Yes, I'm your host, Paul John Roach, coming to you from Fort Worth in Texas. Today, I welcome back to the show Linda Carroll. Uh, She was with me six years ago to discuss her previous book called Love Cycles. And you can visit that on archives anytime you want. Today, she joins me to discuss her new book. It's called Love Skills, The Keys to Unlocking Lasting Wholehearted Love. And uh, Linda is a writer, a therapist, a seminar leader, keynote speaker, um, private coach to couples, individuals, and families. So it's a pleasure to welcome Linda Carroll to this, uh, to the blah, 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 to today's show. Welcome, Linda. Well, hi. I'm so happy to be back with you, Paul. It's good. It's good to have you back. I thoroughly enjoyed the book. I'm looking forward to uh, discussing it. And by the way, folks, just just to let you know up front, it's definitely a workbook. Uh, there's lots of quizzes and um, techniques and uh, useful. Um, ways to approach uh, the relationships and uh, having success and wholehearted love. So it's a very practical uh, workbook, I would say, and not, not just a, uh, an analysis. It, it's, uh, it's a very helpful guide. And, of course, you can get it in all the usual outlets. It's published by New World Library, but uh, it's available everywhere. Love skills. So um, in a divided world which we are in right now, it seems. And we talked a little bit that, about that before the show started, how just being okay is a good good thing right now. Um, in our divided world, a wholehearted uh, love seems a wonderful thing, but also a tall order, doesn't it? Um, I'm sure you agree that any real change that happens in our world must begin, obviously, with us, correct, in, as individuals? Absolutely. So talk about that for a minute. Well, before I do, I want to say something about wholehearted. It's mm-hmm. wholehearted is not a place we get to and stay at. It's like becoming mindful. You, you ha- There are moments where you can see forever and then you go back into your story. And we all do that. We don't get to wholehearted and then we're there. It's, we get to wholehearted and we can hold on to it for just a little bit of time and then something happens and we're knocked off again. Back into our ego, back into our fear, back into all of those human qualities which make us the beings that we are. 
So I think of wholehearted as a as a goal to live from more often than not. Yeah, yeah. very very good point. There's an old movie that said, I got it, I got it, I don't got it. And uh, there was a, the punchline in the movie. And I thought, this is so true on the spiritual path too, right? We, um, we're approaching it, and sometimes we have an epiphany or a moment where we feel we, we have it together, and then we, and then we crash and burn. And especially when we say to ourselves, oh, I, I think I got it now. You know, I think I'm there. That's, that's kind of fatal, isn't it? Because we have to stay humble. You know, whenever the ego thinks it's, it's got a handle on something, then... Uh, you know, it, it, the universe teaches us that it doesn't. So I no. think this is this is okay, isn't it? This um, this balancing act, right? That's the nature of being alive, embodied. Oh, we got it. Better be okay because this is it. Yeah. <laughs> Have it, and 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 I think part of people get it confused about mindfulness too, because that's the new buzzword. Mindfulness is the new word. It used to, it was soulmates when I wrote Love Cycles. Um, and I think of mindfulness as simply the practice of observing when I am sort of in my in my zone or not in my zone and being able to watch my reactivity and knowing when I'm in more of a responding place or when I'm being reactive. But it's but but mindfulness isn't living on some high perch. It's a, it's just watching when my personality plays in and out with all kinds of things that get, that happen where I get, you know, right, where I, where I sort of lose the way that I want to respond. And I think a relationship, whether it's with a partner, whether it's with a, a child, a, a business partner, that, you know, those, that we are relational and it is those primary relationships that give us the most chance to practice wholehearted because it's in those relationships where it's also tempting to be, let's say less than wholehearted because that's where we get pushed when we're obsessed with goals in the in the west aren't we you know the achievement uh, of something and, and and forget that the, the journey itself is is probably more important than the than the destination and many of us who have reached the the, the destination we thought we wanted you we get there and realize oh well that wasn't it anyway you know that's so right. um that's right i like what you, what you've had what you got here on page 16 in terms of wholehearted love which is it's really about what we're just talking about uh, mindful self-awareness and you know i found in my life that if i notice even the yuckiest parts of me that's as much a breakthrough as if I lord and I lift up the, the great parts in me, right? right. Awareness is, is no uh, respecter of persons. So if, if I'm aware of even the worst stuff in me, that, that can be as great a breakthrough as anything else. And that, that's, that's good news because um, no matter how bad it seems at times, you know, just being mindfully self-aware of it is, is powerful, isn't it? What's the, what do you mean the yucky part? What does that mean? Well, you know, the, the, the bits in me that maybe I want to crawl under the carpet about, you know, that, oh, God, I wish I'd never done that, or the, the, the moments where you feel that was a selfish act or whatever. But if but waking up to them, you know, acknowledging them, seeing, oh, my God, look what I was doing there. You know, having that mindful awareness of what you were doing frees you of it, right? Because you're, you're no longer absorbed or attached to it. You're seeing it in a different light. And... For me, that's been a wonderful thing and a great breakthrough to be, you know, have that level of honesty, I guess. Yes, yes, but I also, and there's also the way you're judging yourself for the yucky parts. You know, there's a, a, a certain, there's a lot of judgment in what you're saying about 
you know, that this part of me is bad. And I, I think often that the yucky parts are the, I was just talking to a client the last hour um, and who was talking about her wanting to rescue people and how she gets in, she's, she's learning how to, how to be a therapist and how she sees somebody in pain and she wants to get in there and she wants to fix it. And she was talking about that as a yucky part. And I was saying, you know, the parts of us that are what, what I would call yucky are often, they're, they're the opposite of the best parts or they're the overextension of the best parts. I remember in the 90s, the word, the big buzzword was codependency. Everyone was codependent and there was boundaries. Everyone was making boundaries and I don't want to be codependent. But if you look at codependency, the other side of codependency is the part of me that wants to take care of and help out other people. And so, you know, I mean, fortunately for myself in my life, I've learned how to become a therapist to do that rather than try to save people I love. Or I have a foundation in Mexico where I can really make a difference rather than trying to fix people who can really take care of themselves. But that instinct to, to fix or to save comes from a beautiful part of us as human beings. And, and, and I think that that's true with so much of how we put ourselves down. It's really just an overused strength. What do you think about that? I'll buy that. That sounds great. You know, an overused strength. I love it. Um, yeah. You know, because ultimately everything works for good, right? Um, and I know that can be used in a, you know, a cheap way, you know, that we, we can yes, um, misconstrue that when we say it's all good. Because when we're in, the, and as a minister, I know this very well, you know, if you're in the middle of trauma or grief, um, somebody says, oh, well, it's all meant for the good. And it's, you know, uh, he's in a better place, you know, if somebody dies or whatever. Um, it does. It's not very comforting at the time to, to declare it's all good. But but ultimately, yes, it is. You know, at, at, at that deep level, um, there's a funny song by Bob Dylan, actually, called It's All Good. And he sort of mocks that that phrase. Um, so, you know, we've got to be careful, don't we, in any um, labeling that we might have. You know, it's it, we, I think this is the same with Black Lives Matter, actually. You know, um, people are saying, well, all lives matter. But. But, you know, if, if you're grieving, you don't want to, somebody to come up to you and say, well, all lives matter. It's too bad you lost your loved one, but all lives matter. No, at that moment, you want somebody to focus in on you and your need. And I think that, you know, at this stage in our history, we, we need to focus on, on black lives, perhaps, you know, and not say that all lives matter because it's uh, short circuits the process, doesn't it? It, oh, absolutely. I In fact, one of my most popular articles I wrote for Tiny Buddha, it was about um, and, and it was called What to Say to Somebody Who's Grieving. And I talked mm -hmm. about what my, my mother died, pe what people said to me that made me feel worse. And one of the worst lines is, of course, it's all good. Um, I don't even, and maybe that would be fun to talk about because I don't understand that at all. Um, I, I think my, but, but to go back to that, you know, the, that, that the, when, when somebody dies, um, we make assumptions about, what that meant. My mother had been sick and she had had, she had been, um, or she was in sort of the middle stages of dementia. She was tortured. And my mother was this fabulous woman and I adored her. But the last two years of her life were awful. And the last six months she called me about 12 or 14 times during the day and night, so scared, so freaked out. And when she died, 
I was relieved for her as well as for me. So people were coming up to me saying, oh, how terrible. This will be the worst thing that ever happens. And I, then I would think, what's wrong with me? I don't feel that. And I, and, I, and I think that that is. And then people would say she's in a better place, which would enrage me. Right, exactly. I want it. Well, I hear your mother passed as though the word death was bad. And here's what helped when people said, what was it like for you? I'm, I, know that, I know that's a big deal to have your mother die. What was that like for you? Uh, the most helpful thing was I'll bring you some enchiladas. Yeah. <laughs> but so, to listen and to not put onto me what their experience was of death, because we, we don't know. So if we go back to it's all good, I don't understand that phrase, Paul. What does it mean it's all good? I want I want to know what you mean by that because it's a for me it 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 feels like a wrap and I work with migrants in Mexico I have a um, I have a, a nonprofit with Peter Yarrow the the folk singer Peter and we do all this gr- great I mean really amazing work with people that um, sometimes turns out really well and sometimes they're sent back to the country they ran from and they're killed by gangs and cartels. And I, and I wonder about how it's all good. Maybe in some ultimate spiritual sense that I'm not aware of, that there's something beyond what I can see with the chips that are in my soul. Um, maybe it has some meaning. But in my little pea brain, in this life, the, the trafficking of children, the murder of black people, no matter what comes out of it, no matter how much awareness is happening because of what's happened in the past few weeks, I, I just can't get myself around. It's all good. So maybe you can help me. Well, I, I think you're right. I don't think there is any easy answer to that. It sounds very callous, you know, when you just throw a little a nice little label on it and saying, oh, well, it's all good. You know, I, I, I subscribe to the viewpoint of the, you know, the philosopher who said we live in the the best of all possible worlds, right? It, and why is it the best of all possible worlds? Because here it is. It's it's what we have. Um, can it get better? Of course it can. But but right now it's the best that you know the universe is brought into being. So in that sense, it's it's good. You know, it's it's part of the process of the evolutionary process of the the work of God, which we assume is is a good force, a good energy. Um, so in in that sense, it's good. It, is it ultimately good through everything that happens? No, you know, there's, there's things that happen in, in the process of development um, where it seems the opposite of good, right? Um, I just, uh, we had some, uh, this is very minor, but I had a couple of raccoons poisoned in a backyard by somebody and uh, I had to go collect them because one died in the chimney and whatnot. And, you know, and I know it's a minor thing, you know, okay, they're a pest, whatever. Then I thought of all the the spraying and the the pesticides and the the things we, that we put all over this country, you know, to kill stuff. And we love our country, and, and we we kill it. We destroy it at the same that's time. Right. And that's and right. so you know, that's the same thing. It, is, was that for good? Well, you know, it's it may be ultimately, it, you know, it inspired me to write a poem about it. So maybe that's good, but. You know, the, the attitudes that we have um, around stuff kind of are very divisive sometimes. We we love things, but we also hate things, you know, um, yeah. at, at the same time. And, um, 
yeah, that, that you know, that's the that's the journey home, right? I think Ramdas said, you know, we're we're all walking each other home, and coming home to, you know, the balance of that 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 conundrum, I guess. There's no e no easy answers here. Well, I think of wholeheartedness as not as as, and I think of wholeness as being able to hold the reality that we don't have a there is no wrap for me there is no wrap it's not ultimately it's for the good you know people dying in internment camps that's not to, i can't get to that and i right. think the challenge of being wholehearted is being able to hold it all and still find a meaning in the moment you know the book that was my book in my lifetime and i i don't know there may be another but the the um Man's Search for Meaning was the book that changed my life when I was 16, and I and I, I understood it, which was that Viktor Frankl book about in even in the worst situations like the concentration camp where he he wrote from in the worst of the worst where people have lost everything they can still make meaning, and I think that's about as good as it can get sometimes, and sometimes it can't even get that good, and yet we have to be in this world and with the dead raccoons and the poisoning of the world and the brave things people do to fight that. That's all part of wholeheartedness. And some people I think, think of wholeheartedness as being this happy heart with a smiley face saying, oh, I'm whole, how about you? But I don't think it is. I think it's holding the pain of the world as well as the joy of the world and not trying to push the pain away because it's there. Absolutely. Well, you know, there's a, a quote in the Bible by the, in the Sermon on the Mount, which says, Jesus says, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And uh, the latest scholarship suggests that the better word would be whole or complete. Yeah. You must be whole and complete as your heavenly Father is complete. And, right. and it sort of speaks to what you're saying. You know, it's, it's complete in, and whole in the midst of, you know, in, in wrapping it all together. Um, and, and it's not about being perfect or whatever that means. You know, like you said, we'll never get to wholeheartedness in that sense. Um, it, it's a process, but but I like that. You know, that that I'm I'm a whole being. I'm taking on the whole thing, and that means I can be compassionate to the broken and the and the hurting and uh, in, in parts in me and also in others, right? And and that that's part of the the redemption of the the world. I think is to it's it's a very Taoist idea, isn't it? It's it's the yin yang, right? It's it's both together. And I think yeah, that's right. And that's the core of the book Love Skills is really that getting to wholehearted love is not La La Land where it's all wonderful. It's being right. able, in the same way that I think we're get we get a lot of hype about what is a good relationship, and 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 or the relationship of your dreams or the perf or do these five skills. And then you'll be back in the beginning stages of a relationship forever. I don't buy it. You know, sometimes it's good and sometimes it's really hard. No matter who you are and who you're with, there are challenges and there are tough, tough seasons. And just when you get it figured out, something else happens. I remember when I first, uh, I've been with my husband for, for almost 40 years and we've been together for 35. I remember, um, or been married for 35. And I remember in the beginning, I, I used to say to him, Oh, God, I'd love to be on a desert island with you. And then came quarantine. And I <laughs> those words. And I just thought, get me out of here. Oh, my God, this is, I can't bear it. And 
everything that was so juicy between us that was different started to drive us crazy about each other, um, which is what I've been doing a lot of work with couples over the past few months because, because finding an acceptance of the difference in one another is such a challenge in our relationships. But when you're together 24-7, which we have been and which probably we're going to be again because the waves are coming back, as we, as we know, um, that, that it, that is really a challenge. And so wholehearted means we make room for some days that are impossible. I have one, I have one couple, the, the guy, the man is such an introvert. I mean, he could have written the book on introversion. So guess who his partner is? The queen of having a party every day and who wants contact all the time. And they have worked out a pretty good deal. But now quarantine came and he finally created a place in the closet a place in the closet where he has a tiny light and a little tiny nest in a bed. And they have an agreement that when he goes in the closet, she will not bother him because they're in a very small condo in New York. I think that's really great. So he's in his closet and he has a little sign in the closet because having to work out with somebody who's different, boy, do those, those differences become so exaggerated right now. So wholeness in relationship is accepting the places where it's not whole, don't you think? Right, and that's the second and third parts of what you say about wholehearted love here. You know, we talk about mindful self-awareness, and the, but then you, you talk about relationship skillfulness, and, you know, they were being skillful in allowing that, you know, in acknowledging the difference, and, and instead of making it a problem, you know, find, find a, a skillful solution. The Buddha talked about skillful means, you know, looking at ways to maneuver through the difficulties of life yeah and and we can't i love the idea of being skillful right we 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 admire it when we see a skill uh, being done say in in woodwork or whatever and watch somebody making something but i think we can also be skillful in in the ways we approach life it, it, it's uh, there's a pleasure to it isn't there seeing things work out in an elegant way you know and that enhances everybody it's lovely I love that word elegant. I just, there's something about that word elegant that's elegant. It's an uh, elegant yeah, right. word, isn't it? Elegant. It's a beautiful word that you used. Yeah, I, I, you know, I like elegant. I like grace, gracious. You know, we, they used to say gracious living or whatever, and, and then that's a bit of a cliche, isn't it? But yeah. there's, some, there's something to that, you know, being uh, gracious with each other in a relationship. I mean, my wife and I like to do that, you know, to... Because, you know, otherwise it can be hard-edged sometimes. And being gracious means respectful of the other person and, and lifting them up. And I, and I think there's, there's room for that, especially today. You know, it's so easy to, to fall into the, the division that is all around us. The third thing you have is care and nourishment of the relationship. And as you said earlier, you know, this is an ongoing thing, right? You don't wake up one day and everything's perfect. No, every day... You t- just as you brush your teeth every day, so you you care and nourish the relationship. It's, it's the same kind of thing, right? That's right. And sometimes we care. The re- sometimes the nourishment is 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 talks, conversations. Sometimes the the nourishment is just I don't know. We've my husband and I have been fighting the last three days about something really really stupid, really stupid, and yeah. and, and and but we keep getting into it. And this morning he said, let's just, I have a, a, this exercise in my book. It's not for everyone, but I think it's great called Melting Hug. And um, a class I'm teaching online, um, one of the couples said that that's what they do. And I said, let's just do that. 
And he said, no talking. I said, no talking. So we just hugged each other. And we started, you know, I like, I like how he smells. So that was good. So we had this hug. I just didn't want him to talk because then I'd get mad again. So <laughs> we're trying to work out how to do something. And we're very approaching it very differently. But it was so wonderful. We just hugged and we started laughing and said, maybe we shouldn't do words today because we this feels so good. Let's just not do words and we'll just bump into each other and do this and then but not talk. And then maybe we'll be ready to tomorrow because sometimes words get us into trouble. So the communication, one of the skillful communication skills is knowing when to talk and when not to. But it's not just sort of bursting out with what you feel. Um, when I, one of the things I say in, in that when I talk about skillful communication is I say the strength of your desire to say something to your partner is not connected to the wisdom of saying it. I just had to say it. You know, when people say that, uh-uh. we don't have to say anything. Sometimes what we have to do is be have the grace enough and the elegance enough to recognize where they are before we share what's so big inside of us, whether it's a complaint, but also sometimes when we're feeling so expansive and great about our life and our partner has just found out some really bad news about work and, you know, had a, dis a big disappointment in their life and lost some of their pension in the stock market is not the time to share good news and expect them to rejoice for us. So part of the skill is managing ourselves and that impulse to to speak sometimes when it's not the best time to speak. Well, that's a life skill. It's taken me a long time. How about you? Well, I think you're absolutely right. In our society, you know, we, we praise our ability to vocalize things, you know, the gift of the gab. And, yes. and, and uh, unfortunately, that's, that's not always beneficial. There's a great story about uh, Emerson and, and Thomas Carlyle supposedly met at one time. Emerson went to Scotland to meet him. And uh, they sat together for an hour and said nothing. And then at the end of the hour, they said, thank you so much for a wonderful conversation. You know, they hadn't even spoken at all, but they didn't need to. They were they were communing at a higher, a higher level. And this is exactly what you're talking about. I think, you know, it's there's so much nonverbal communication that can happen if we can sit and relax uh, and, and let it express. Right. We, but we can't. We've got to fill every moment. With with words, which we're doing yeah. right now, I guess that's part of it. It's hard to be silent on the radio, um, folks. I'm I'm with uh, Linda Carroll. We're talking about a wonderful new book, uh, Love Skills: The Keys to Unlocking Lasting Wholehearted Love. And uh, we're going to take a break. We'll be back in a couple of minutes uh, to find out more about this great book. So join us then. Practical spirituality. Positive messages. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. We now return to World Spirituality with Reverend Paul John Roach. 
All right, welcome back to the show. I'm with uh, Linda Carroll. We're talking about her new book, Love Skills. And uh, for those that are familiar with her work, you're going to know the, the five stages. But for those who aren't, do you want to just quickly go through those stages, Linda? Oh, sure. The st first stage is when we, when we fall in love, I call it the merge. And that's the stage of just ecstasy. It's, it's mediated by hormones and chemicals and we see the very best of the other person. And I think we go through that in lots of ways. We go through it with jobs. We go through it with friendships. We fall in love with something and we go through it with a house we're buying and it's, we're full of all the possibilities. And then the chemicals wear off. We move into what I call the power struggle or doubt and denial. And we start to see the other side of what we fell in love with. And I think that we, we begin to feel annoyed or the thing, you know, I remember in the first stages, my husband would take me out camping. I thought that was the most wonderful thing in the world. And um, I, I remember waking up one time out camping somewhere and I thought, why am I here? You know, I want a bed. I want a bathroom. This is not, I'm a San Francisco person he and he is a, a, a New Zealand country person so I that second stage is where we move into a power struggle and the things some of the things we fall in fell in love with start to annoy us um, and we have to work out our differences which is the it's not that there's something wrong it's that we're human the, but we don't have a lot of modeling or skills in our culture for how to work out conflict so often the conflicts escalate and they turn into what I call loops, which are repeated conflicts that go on and on. The same loop you get into. I was talking to you earlier about getting into one with, with my husband this, yesterday. And it's those repeated conversations that go nowhere. Because um, we're never really talking about the real thing. And we're talking about what it, what it seems to be about. And that is what I, that's the disenchantment stage, stage three from enchantment to disenchantment. And that bridge that takes us there is the power struggle. And disenchantment is where we see just about everything that's wrong, um, can feel hopeless. Sometimes hard moves happen during this stage of a relationship. People have affairs or they become distant or sex stops or touching stops, physical affection stops. People move into parallel lives. And, and I, we don't have a lot of tolerance for that in our culture, and and that and that I'm glad because in the fourth stage we say well, I'm going to do something about it. I don't want to stay in this pain. People often will leave a relationship at this stage, or they will accept that it's parallel and give up trying to reconnect. But sometimes people say I want to find out. I want to do something else with this. Find out how I got here, and see if there's a way out of it. And this is when I this is what I love. And they say I want to learn what I can do differently. And so this is where love skills comes in because they're, even if we don't stay in a relationship forever, the skills are so important to learn how to manage conflict without hurting, how to accept differences in understanding the difference between the, 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 the walking issues and really having be just holding on to being right for the sake of being right. So those so many skills and learning those skills makes all of our relationships better. The last stage is wholehearted love, which is where doing the work, we become more whole within ourselves. So how is that for a wrap? Great. And, you know, it, as I was reading through the book, I couldn't help but think how much this parallels 
you know, aspects of what's happening in the world right now. You know, that we go through these stages and we're looking for some kind of breakthrough here from the trance that we seem to be in, you know. And in recent weeks, there seems to be a shift of some kind to finally say, well, maybe this is crazy. Maybe, you know, lifting up Confederate war heroes is, is a little silly, you know, 100 and something years after, you know, almost 200 years after the event. Um, oh. Things like that. You know, maybe maybe we can refresh our nation here. We don't have to live by those standards, which... We didn't even look at. We just took them for granted. I, I think it's the same with black history. You know, a lot of us didn't know parts of black history uh, because we only were taught white history. And um, it's nice to know these things, the, 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 the ways that people have uh, both suffered and succeeded. You know, sometimes we don't lift up people who, uh, who have been great heroes and break, uh, people have made breakthroughs in, in, for America, you know, be, have been downgraded. So... I, I see these, this, this pattern, this, these cycles also repeating out there, which is fascinating, actually, to me. So the yeah. book was relevant in that regard, too. Oh, I'm so glad. Well, thank you so much for saying that. Yeah. You, know, when you, you talk about the genogram, right? The, you know, coming up with uh, the, the uh, history of your family, right? And the, the, all the various dynamics that are involved in that. Um, again, that works great for us individually, but I think it also works, you know, in a larger sense too. You know, to look that we're all there's so much diversity in our nation, right? And we then we can learn to skillfully understand that. Well, there's also so much diversity in our families, and you know, families have stories that they tell about, right. and and they tell stories about about their about ancestors and what happened but they usually don't tell the real story. And when we start to understand the, the real story of our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents, and by the real story, I mean some of the painful parts, what happens is we have so much more compassion. I remember a client doing the geneogram who had a, a, very, a pretty benign childhood. Um, he had good, really good parents, loved them a lot, um, you know, normal trouble, but not abnormal, but something was off. And his, he said that he felt that his father, all, his father always showed up for him, um, went, you know, went to his games and supported him in the ways that he, he, you know, that, that he felt like he needed to, but he never really felt his father cared for him in a certain way because he wasn't expressive he was often very, very quiet when he wasn't doing things with his kids, and he didn't share anything about himself, and his father died, and this guy was pretty haunted by it, and he made up a story, which is what we do when we don't know the information, we make up a story. He made up a story because he was the middle child, that it was because he was in trouble a lot as a kid. He was not a very interesting kid. He wasn't a great success like his oldest brother. And that's why his father wasn't very present for him. So when we did the geneogram, I asked him, he filled out his father's life. And I said, well, there's two years here you haven't said anything about. He said, well, you know, he was in the war. And I said, but where? He said, well, I don't know. It was he didn't talk about it. So I had him find out about it. He went to an uncle who was alive. And he said, what happened to my dad during the war? Paul, his father was in a POW camp for two years, and he never talked about it. And actually, his mom didn't know about it. The dad, because his, this was World War II, 
and we didn't talk about those things. And guys came home, women, but mostly men then, came home from that war. They were just glad to be home. People here didn't know about PTSD, and you got on with your life. And his dad was a guy who got on with his life, but he had two years in a POW camp. He was the only one who lived through it. His friends all died. So this man who was carrying such deep sorrow and who was obviously depressed his whole life was this amazing hero because he did what he showed up for his family, but his inner life was full of pain. When my client understood this, not only was he relieved from the story he told himself that he was the inadequate kid whose father did the right thing but didn't really love him, he was freed from that story, but he was the wellspring, and he was also a minister, the wellspring of compassion he felt for his father, for that whole generation, affected everything in his life. So he stopped telling himself a story about his own inadequacy, but he became a bigger soul because he understood what, what really happened. Beautiful story. And, and, you know, that's true for thousands, hundreds of thousands of people not just in World War II, but I think in Vietnam as well, you know, that inability to share because they feel people will not understand, you know, that they, yeah. it's unique to them. And, um, and we have a lot of empathy and sympathy for, for those folks. I think my, my uh, uh, father-in-law was the same. He, uh, he, he observed things in the Pacific that he couldn't get, he ever deal with, you know, and it, it totally affected his, his life and, and also his relationship with, with his children. Um, so yeah, these are these are huge forces, you know, and and um, and yet there are ways to penetrate that, right? The, and to understand that, right? To not make it a problem anymore, you know. It's not about me, perhaps. It's it's you know, it, it's uh, I can release this. I can reframe this in some way. That, and understanding the real story is such an important part of that. Really under really, and we can do that when we go into really looking at those stories. I remember seeing the the um, well, this goes into Black Lives Matters too. I remember seeing the play Fences with Denzel Washington, and I don't know if you know that play, but it's a story about a father son relationship. And the father is always telling the son, Forget those dreams, you know, you're going to be a garbage man like I am, and be glad you have a job. And the son wants to be a baseball player, and his father is telling him that he's dumb to have that. And he and, it, and there's this very very violent fight scene where the son says, "You know, you, you don't believe in me. You don't care about me." And the father is saying, "You're just a dumb dreamer. Give it up." Well, so you can look at that story, and there and the, these are two black men, and you can look at that story. And you can say, what's wrong with that father? Why can't he be different? No wonder the son is mad. But then as you get to know the story, you know, what you find out is that the father wanted to be a professional baseball player. And it was his whole life. And he had, he was chosen to go off and to actually participate. And I, I can't remember exactly what happened. There was one thing that happened in his life. We got into some very small trouble with the police. I don't, I can't remember it exactly, but he was never given a second chance because black people were not given second chances. And he lost his dream and it broke his heart. What he was trying to do with his son was stop his son from having his heart broken. And his way of doing that was saying, don't dream because they'll take it away from you. But his son only saw this father who was telling him not to believe in himself. And he felt personal. 
understanding the story released him. It releases us when we understand the story from something. Right, exactly. A beautiful, beautiful. What I was saying earlier about, you know, when you understand even the most difficult things, sometimes it could be a breakthrough, right? It's, it's a yeah. wonderful moment. Folks, the book's full of all kinds of things that you can do. Uh, one thing I'm going to do with my wife is eye gazing. And we do look at each other a lot, but I'm going to do that practice. We just sit and look at each other. Um, and, and I know I've done it in, in other formats, and it's a quite a vulnerable thing to do, to actually look deeply into somebody's eyes without saying anything, just allowing them to be them and, and you to be you. And and it's discomforting because, you know, we, we usually have some kind of barrier that we are protecting ourselves with. And it's, it's, it's very fascinating to be that vulnerable and yet also freeing, I think, because we get to see things in each other that we hadn't maybe hadn't seen before. So that's something I'm going to do. Now you talk a lot about, uh, you know, culture clashes, um, self-inquiry, um, the power of the pause. I, I like that one. Tell us about that. Well, you know, when you go to mindfulness retreats, there is a, um, a of all different kinds, all different on all different religious mind, and, and um, transpersonal mindfulness retreats that, that there is, often during the day times where there's a bell that's rung and when that bell is rung it's you you put down whatever you're doing you put down your fork or your shovel and you stop and you breathe and take a pause and the pause means you check in with yourself you take a breath what's going on with my body what's going on with my thoughts what am i feeling and that pause is a re self-reflection and then you go back about your life and you do that throughout the day. And it's what we don't do often in our relationships. And so what I teach people is how important it is to stop. It's, I said that a few minutes ago. When you feel this big desire to say something, whether it's to express your upset with your partner, your anger, or excitement, take a pause instead. Back off. Is this the best time? Taking a pause, which sometimes feels counterintuitive, is one of the life skills for everything. Before we make decisions, when we're engaged in conversation, what we want to do often is go towards it, back off for a minute, stop. That's called mindfulness, becoming aware of what's going on on the inside before we're putting it too much on the outside. You know, it could be because I'm getting old but, and I'm turning into an old codger, but when I get on the highway and, and see all these people going at 90 miles an hour, I think, oh, my goodness, where are they all rushing to, especially during COVID-19, you know? Um, but people are still rushing down the highway. And to me, it's an indicator of the fact that we're, we're rushing through our lives. You know, there's no, there's no power of the pause there, you know? And, and um, I, I think it'd be wonderful if everybody sort of slowed down a little bit, you know, and just enjoyed their ride instead of... Um, rushing from one uh, event to the next and, and uh, it's, it's sort of a, a symbolic indicator if you like of, of of what what's the madness and rushing craziness of our society right the, the busyness it's happening now in sheltering in place when it first started people were including me were like well here we are we can pick this is a, a forced pause we're here in our homes we're not leaving we're just gonna shelter in place and then I've done it. I've suddenly gotten, I've cleaned every single part of, I've lived here 40 years, every file cabinet. I've gone through everything. 
know, painting the house. Suddenly, the pause turned into projects. And I, so many people I know have gone, moved from this time of respite. I mean, I remember when it started, I got all these books out I had not read. And I started reading at night. And I started doing things that I haven't done in years. But now my life is so busy. I go from one Zoom to another Zoom. And I go from one house project to another. And we're growing all of our uh, vegetables. I mean, none of those things, those things are all great. But that what you're talking about, that driving on the freeway, has also come in, crept into people who are staying a lot of, at home a lot because we're recreating that crazy busyness even when we're not going anywhere. Right, exactly. And one of the big things you talk about in the book, of course, is, is dear to my heart, and that's listening. And there's, a, there's an amazing power, isn't there, too? And it sort of links in with the pause as well, because you can't listen unless you can be quiet and, and pause for a while from your own your need to, to fill every moment with uh, a response and to truly listen, right? There's different kinds of listening, but the deepest one is where we're, we're deep, deeply attentive, right? Without having to respond necessarily. Um, we're not thinking about what we want to say back. We're, we're just hearing what the other person has to say. And that, again, that can be an amazingly powerful uh, moment of epiphany sometimes to really hear what another person is saying. I, we are not born knowing how to be good listeners. Some people are certainly better than others. But listening is an art. And the th really good news about, in my book, here's the good news, really good news, is that our brains, uh, there is something called neuroplasticity that we, are, we have discovered that we have in our brains which allow us to learn. We can become better listeners. We can learn to. The love skills that I talk about are life skills, and we can all get better at it. Listening is an art. And in order to really listen to another person, you have to do something that's counterintuitive. You know what that is? You have to make it not about you. And when we listen so often, it's about us. You know, you, I say, how's your day? You say, well, you know, it's okay, but boy, I'm having a hard time. My wife always wants the news on, and I don't want to even listen to the news. So what I might say is, you know, that happens here too, but there's something about the news. Isn't it reassuring when we hear the news? Or I could say, oh, the news is all full of trouble anyway. Why would anyone do it? But I take that conversation off in a direction that's mine. Listening means I stop and I say, tell me more about what's going on. I let it be about you rather than me. So it's a real discipline to learn to listen because we have to put our, ourself away. And often our fascination was talking about ourselves or hearing our, our own story rather than someone else's. So it's a big work. I call it big spiritual practice, learning to listen. And then, there's, and then there's sex. So you have a chapter on sex. Tell us about that. Well, the cha the, I, I, I love the beginning of the chapter on sex because what I say in that beginning is how hard it is to know how to start that chapter. That it's like how, you know, I, I've read so many books on sex as a therapist working with couples and my own sexuality, which has changed so much in my life in so many different ways. And I have, it is a complicated, complicated topic. The number one trouble between couples, what do you think it is? You know what, do you know, what would you, you want to guess? No. <laughs> okay. um, the number Go ahead, one, tell me. Talking about it. Oh, really? 
we're so vulnerable that talking about it is hard to do, really hard to do. You know, that there's some idea that if I am, I have a, I have a good friend, Pepper Schwartz. She's great. She's written a lot of books and, and uh, she's a director of a program called Marriage at First Sight. Anyway, Pepper has this great phrase, which is, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, except about sex. When we're making love, do not do unto others as you would have them do unto you. What we need is a conversation. You like this, what feels good, what turns you on. You know, some people are like light switches and they're instantly ready. Other people are slow irons and they very slowly get aroused. They very slowly think of it uh, about sex, if ever. And people desire discrepancy is one of the biggest couples after talking about sex desire discrepancy is one of the biggest troubles people have one person thinks about it wants to have sex a lot the other doesn't have desire for it maybe ever how do we start to talk about those things in a way that is gracious and kind and making room for the other person not making it about us so having the conversation and learning how to do that skillfully is the most important first step I think that's powerful because, uh, you know, we, it's inbuilt in, into the society again that this is supposed to happen, you know, naturally uh, without thinking about it, you know, just, uh, you know, and that's not true. You know, the, the, it does take some working out, doesn't it? That I think the people don't want to talk about it too much because it sort of spot, it seems to ruin the spontaneity sometimes. You know, if you have to think it through or whatever. But, you know, thinking it through doesn't preclude spontaneity, right? It's just learning your different styles and, and needs and, and then acting naturally or whatever. Um, you know, I was going to say, usually the only language we use is, you know, how is it for you? That's about the only thing we say. Right. Um, and right. and you know, that's not really satisfactory, is it? If you don't know how it was, you know, you weren't really present for the... Uh, for the events, you know. <laughs> well, also, when I really am saying, how was it for you? There also is in that a catch, because you better say it was good. And the, and, yeah, and, right. and the other thing about sex is that we change sexually in our life. I am not who I was at 30 or 40 or 50 or 60. You know, I'm in my 70s. I, I, it's Libido is a whole different thing. We're not going to have the same kind of sexual relationship when we're 50 that we did when we were 20. Or when we're 30. It's, and so acknowledging how those changes happen without personalizing them is a really important, important thing to do. It's a part of love skills. Right. Exactly. And everybody's different, right? I know some people who don't have sex at all, you know, and they're only 50 and others are having every day at, at 80 or whatever. So, you know, there's, there's no way to judge this. So we have to, we have to find what works for for us and, and, and our, our relationship. So we're almost at the end of the show. Uh, let me tell you about next week's show. And then I'm going to ask uh, Linda if she'd tell us one thing, a little word of advice to lead us into the week. Okay, so we'll come back to that. Think about that while I tell them about next week. Uh, next week, anthropologist and expert in consciousness, Richard Grossinger, joins me. And he's going to talk about his new book, which is entitled Bottoming Out the Universe, Why There is Something Rather Than Nothing. That sounds interesting, doesn't it? So join me then for that. Uh, so 
Linda, if you could impart the word of wisdom to us, just to take us into the week, what would it be? The new, the new hot word is kindness. Kindness to ourselves, kindness to other people. It's an ongoing practice. It's the best thing we can do as human beings is practice kindness. And we need it in this world, most of all with people who are different than us. Powerful. Yeah, you know, my, my mother, when I was a kid, used to say the most important thing is kindness. And I've taken that with me all my life. You know, I thought she was speaking very, very wise words. But, you know, it's the old idea. Nobody can walk in somebody else's moccasins, right? Um, we're all fighting a great battle or whatever. Be kind. We're all fighting a great battle. And and it's true. Once we understand that, uh, you know, we, we, we can become warm. I mean, I, I, I extend compassion to our president, you know, even though I don't uh, like many of his policies, his attitudes or whatever. But I, I can still see him as a spiritual being, right? And I think it's important because... Um, that expands the possibility that's available for me and for the world, right? But if I if all I can see is hate, then that, that doesn't help anything. Yes, that's right. Well, I, you, I, I work on that with our president, but I'm not as far along as you are. <laughs> well, we're all on you know different roads on on the different stages of the path, and that that's part of what this book is about. Uh, like you mentioned to me at the beginning, don't judge or beat up on yourself. Uh, you know, learn everything's everything is for learning. It may not all be good, quote, <laughs> but it is all for all for learning. All right. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much, Linda, for being a guest on our show today. Well, it's great. Thank you. Really appreciate it. And, and th thank, thank you so much. And then thanks everybody for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Let go of everyday worries and find your calm with positive prayer from Silent Unity, the newest in voice-activated technology, available on any Alexa-enabled device like the Amazon Echo. Each prayer and meditation on positive prayer will help strengthen, guide, and comfort you. To enable it, just say, Alexa, open positive prayer. You can ask for a specific prayer on topics like healing, prosperity, and comfort. Give it a try today.